Welcome to Good Employment Chatter, the podcast of the Greater Manchester Good Employment Charter. In this season, each and every week, we'll be speaking about equality, diversity and inclusion. We'll be providing key legal updates, getting practical advice from industry experts and spreading more awareness on the good employment practices that are going to make Greater Manchester fairer, more inclusive and with equal opportunity for all. I'm your host, Ian MacArthur, so let's get on and into the episode. The theme for today's episode is gender. Gender inequalities are apparent in workplaces right across the world. Made clear in aspects such as pay, level of opportunity and representation across an organisation especially at a senior level. For example, while women account for around 40% of the global workforce, only 5% are in senior leadership roles. Tackling this inequality and improving gender diversity within an organisation only brings business benefits. And it's important for organisations to monitor that data and to work towards change. In the main discussion for today's episode, we'll be focusing on women in male-dominated industries speaking primarily to those sectors that have a higher imbalance of gender diversity. We'll then move on to speak about sexual harassment with a focus on the Is This Okay campaign launched to spark conversations across Greater Manchester about the impact of such abuse. But first, we'll start by speaking to Adam Haynes, partner at Aaron & Partners, to kick off the show with the legal updates this week. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be here again. So for today's employment updates, I wanted to deal with a few things. First off, the potential development following the P&O case and several other high-profile fire and hire situations which have been covered off in the media over the last 12, 18 months. As I don't know if you're aware, but about 12 months ago, the government made a decision not to change the law in relation to hire and fire, but that seems to be being looked at again. On the 29th of March of this year, the government reconsidered its previous decision and announced that a new statutory code of practice on fire and hire was going to be brought in, where changes were being made to employees' terms and conditions. It's understood that the scope of the code will be in accordance with TOLCRA, which is the main piece of legislation covering this area, and an employment tribunal would be required to consider the code when considering a relevant case. So similar to a redundancy process, obviously the the code in relation to redundancy is non-binding, but obviously this situation in relation to disciplinary processes, the ACAS code is binding must be followed. So um, redundancy is an advisory code, but it does generally have a thread of whether it's reasonable or not. As in these situations as well, where the code is not followed, this is only in relation to disciplinary processes, a 25% uplift may be applied uh, for failure to follow the statutory code trying to increase the deterrent for companies not adhering to it. I think my only worry and observation on that is I think that will put pressure on possibly the SME market, ensuring that companies follow that process, which in my experience they tend to do. However, whether that's a deterrent in a situation such as a P&O scenario, I think is another thing, particularly given the amount of money involved. It would be interesting to see whether they put in any anti-avoidance measures into these changes or any new legislation in place to actually put in place a greater penalty for companies riding roughshod over the process and offering going straight to offering settlement agreements. On the 15th of June, 
it's just confirmed that a draft code will be published for consultation in the summer of this year. So it is something that is definitely you need to watch out for and get involved in the consultation process. I'm sure in the Good Employment Charter are picking up on this. So I know there's been a recent event on it. Moving on, I wanted to talk about the case of Nissan Motors and Passy. This is a recent case which deals with a not uncommon scenario based on my tribunal experience. Situations do arise when an employee leaves employment feeling highly aggrieved. And what they do is they take documentation with them to take legal advice and springboard into an employment tribunal claim. What happens and what the company's rights are in this situation are covered off in this case. So, Mr. Passy was employed as a global general counsel for Nissan Motors. Upon his termination, he was required, in accordance with his contract, to return all company property, including all documentation. After dismissal, he issued two employment tribunal claims. And then following the employment tribunal process, his lawyers disclosed basically a disclosure list to the other side. This disclosure list contained 100 sensitive documents from Nissan. Following receipt of this list of documents, Nissan took the decision to go to the court to recover this documentation stating that these documentation belonged to Nissan, it was their property. And Nissan said it could be the case that could cause unquantifiable damage if these documents were released into the public. Mr. Passy admitted he'd removed the documents to take legal advice. The reason for this was he lacked confidence in Nissan disclosing this documentation during disclosure. However, the High Court granted an application for delivery up, so I think sending the documentation through and ordered Mr. Passy to return the documentation to delete any copies. The court said that even though Mr. Passy was a whistleblower, he wasn't entitled to retain the documents and preempt what might happen during disclosure. So essentially what they're saying is, you can't take matters into your own hands. You've got to rely upon the court process to ensure that this documentation comes to the forefront. You cannot just retain this documentation and walk out with it, which I don't think is unsurprising. But I don't know if people have actually turned their mind to these situations because it's not uncommon for when employment tribunals are pending for people to take covert recordings, people to take papers and refuse to deliver them up because they believe that they essentially it's a silver bullet for their case. Mr. Passy must rely upon the court disclosure process, was what the court said. And actually, the reality of this situation is that if you were to take this documentation, it's likely to actually bolster the company's position in relation to defending the employment tribunal claim. Because what they can say is, well, Mr. Passy behaved unreasonably. He breached the terms of his contract and retained all this documentation. As such, we would have potentially dismissed him anyway when we found out about this, or it was contributory fault and reduced the award for compensation. So I think it's an interesting case just highlighting what the position is for employees and employers. The indication further from the judgment was even if the employee had not used the documents, it was still Nissan's property and they would have still been entitled to succeed on the interim application. I think the alternative in this situation is where an employee is finding themselves in this sort of position is to take a handwritten note, obviously, of what's going on on a record so that when going through the court process, they can remember what they need to ask for. Obviously, that list shouldn't contain any confidential information and you need to take legal advice on it. But I think that's a better way to approach it rather than taking reams of confidential information, which could then put you on the back foot at a later date. And then finally, I want to talk about another case that's recently been published. This is a situation of, and again, this comes up quite regularly in employment tribunal processes, 
is the fact that employment tribunal process at the final hearing is open and therefore what documentation can actually be requested by the press. And I don't think companies really consider this until normally a short period of time before the hearing. So just by way of background, I've had three or four cases that have either been directly reported or parts of them reported in the front page of national newspapers. So it, it, it isn't uncommon. I've had members of the press walk into the tribunal on a number of occasions to take notes and ask for sight of documentation. However, I think in the pandemic, it's been very difficult for people to access remote hearings, but it still does happen. So I had a recent case where it was a concern for my client and we were worried about witness statements being put into the public domain, given that it was related to a high-profile member of the community. So what is the situation on this? The case is Guardian News and Media and Rosanov and EFG Private Bank. It basically reminds us that it's an open tribunal process. This was a whistleblowing case where detriment and dismissal was alleged arising from a bank compliance issue. The claimant was ultimately unsuccessful in his whistleblowing case. However, some months later, the Guardian newspaper wrote to the tribunal requesting copies of all documentation, including pleadings, witness statements, and skeleton arguments. The claimant was happy for this to be disclosed, probably not unsurprisingly, but the bank rejected, given that it involved banking compliance issues, so that's not really unsurprising. The tribunal took the decision that would disclose the pleadings, but they wouldn't disclose any of the other documentation. The Guardian took the decision to appeal this decision and was successful at appeal. Appeal tribunal referred to an overriding importance, basically to ensure that the Guardian was entitled to ensure that it was reporting was fair and accurate, so this documentation was necessary in order to do that, and there was a public interest in disclosure. I think none of that is unsurprising from a legal perspective, but it does sort of highlight the importance that if a newspaper or the media wish to actually request those documentation, which is, is quite rare, it doesn't come up a huge amount. It's just something that companies need to consider as a risk when dealing with employment tribunal claims. As I believe it's regularly overlooked until the last minute, there are very limited situations whereby you can restrict reporting of cases. It is possible, but only in very limited circumstances. As always, if anybody has any queries, feel free to reach out to me on email or by LinkedIn, and I'll come back over to Ian. Thanks a lot. Today, the topic of our main discussion will be about gender balance in the workplace, and specifically about women in male-dominated industries. For example, despite women making up over 50% of the UK population, they make up just 11% of the construction workforce and only 1% of operatives on site. With many industries facing skill shortages, it's never been more important to draw in the wide pool of talent and to increase gender diversity in these workplaces. This conversation will be led by Daphne Doody-Green, Head of CIPD North, Board Member and wonderful friend of the Good Employment Charter. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. 
Thanks, Ian. It's wonderful to be here and thank you very much for the invitation to chair this important discussion. Not only is it hugely important to me as a female in the workplace, but it's a key agenda for CIPD that cuts across many elements of good work and inclusive work practices. And we absolutely need to champion the importance of female representation in our workplaces. So I'm very pleased that the Charter is bringing this discussion to their members today. And I think it's critical that we kind of really continue to encourage Increase the imbalance, particularly at the top of organisations, as you've mentioned. And we need to really make some progress here. We are making some progress, but there's still more that we can do in terms of supporting employers to really help them to develop more modern, supportive, inclusive strategies. And I'm sure we'll find out more from our speakers today. So I'm going to start. I'm going to invite our panel on, which are going to share some experiences and insights from their organisations. We'll be speaking to Craig Carney, who's the head of HR at Seden, and Hannah Schilling, business manager at Enicret. Great to be speaking with you both today. Um, So I'm going to come to you first, Hannah. It would be great if you can share your experience with us of being a woman progressing your career in a male-dominated industry. Is there any advice that you can give employers that they can pull from your experience? Yeah, good morning all. Thanks for having me on. It is greatly appreciated. Yes, I'm a business manager. I work for a company called Enacret and we are a male-dominated business. We supply, install and maintain ground source and air source heat pumps. Myself, I, I do the administration for the business and I've been with the company now for about three years. We are a growing company, so there is about 10 of us at the moment, but we are rapidly growing and the need for more staff is obviously coming up in the future. As the only female in the company, sometimes it can be quite daunting because I feel like there's more power with the men in the business. Sometimes they make more decisions, more high level decisions. And also sometimes it can be quite difficult trying to put your opinion across as a female and someone that does the administration. But quite luckily in my company, I'm quite important in in the business. I'm able to sort of join the team meetings and make decisions on behalf of the company. Maybe not necessarily project based, but in terms of financing and staffing. And it's, it's quite nice to have some involvement. But I do agree that we do need to have more sort of female based members in the company. As to my knowledge, when I was at school, construction was about the men, wasn't very male dominated. And until you're actually in here, you don't understand what impact a woman can have in the business. I also think I make a lot of decisions admin based and it's also nice to bring the females sort of into the company. I mean, I'm shortly going to be taking on some more staff to work under myself and I would like them to go through the apprenticeship route, which I went through. And it also balances it out as well. Sometimes it can be a lonely place being the only female in the office and having a female chat sometimes is just what you need and you break out. So I do think it's important. I do sometimes think this comes down to sort of the education sector. I do feel the education sector needs to sort of speak to teachers and students in school and maybe have the conversation with them about how women can be working in construction. Because I know when I was at school, I had no visions of being in construction whatsoever. I wanted to be in the more female-dominated businesses such as beauty and in the NHS, whereas I think a lot of students don't know. I was talking to a head teacher last week and they were saying how their boy students all want to be builders and the women want to be dancers. And I feel like times have changed. 
So that's something that I'd like to sort of progress while while working in Enercret to build up female morale and the female attendance in the company. Thanks, Hannah. Um, and just great, great to hear your experiences of what it's like to be in that male-dominated environment and some of the ways that, you know, you're, you're trying to challenge that kind of system. You talked about skills and future skills, and I think that's a really important point you've made around how we can educate through schools and other educational establishments the importance of all these other sectors to really encourage more females in into those sectors we're just kind of pulling on your experience of being that only female what kind of support have you had from colleagues within the business to, to kind of make you want to kind of champion females so particularly from your line manager or other people that that you work with I do have a great support, actually. Obviously, at the moment, we are still growing, so we haven't employed anyone as of recent. However, this is something that we're working on. We've had quite a busy year with projects, and this is a bit of time now where we can sit back and think, what do we need and who do we need? And I have made the point across that more females do need to be in this business, so it evens out and it's more diverse. It is something that we are going to be pushing on. So my line manager has sort of given me the responsibility to be able to go out and find those females in the business as it's something that I can relate to. And it's quite nice to be able to be given that task because I am making improvements in the company. I'm not only just doing it for myself, but I'm doing it as a female. And it's nice that I can be given that role. Whereas I feel like if you have a male that's dominating that role, there's already male dominating the company. So a male dominating that role would also feel like there's no improvements whereas my company are very open to me being able to look out for that next female that joins the company and be able to guide that female and mold that female because I understand it can be quite daunting for a female to join a male dominated company so I'm sort of there as that leader to sort of bring them in on the journey that I've been on and to just encourage that person that everything will be fine it's not as bad as probably what it looks on the outside. I mean that's great to hear Hannah and I was just reflecting as you were talking then about this role of kind of encouraging more females back into your sector and and your organization i mean is there support for flexible working practices so one of the things that the charter really supports and equally cipd does is that kind of broadening access to flexible working not just for females but for males also i was just interested to know whether or not that's something that your organization supports yeah absolutely we um we as enocrat have quite strong core values and one of those is health and well-being and flexible working so we're very lucky obviously i do feel the covid pandemic even though it has been quite a, a negative time i do think it has had its additions as well because i now work from home two days a week so to be honest that is down to my own choice and we don't work any set days and set times it's a case of providing we're in for those core hours we can work from wherever at what whatever time as long as the work is done we're supporters of the uh, lighthouse construction charity we're also registered with the good employment charter and we're also signed up with the living wage foundations the situation with the pandemic has made people reassess that so we are quite good on those aspects and that's great advice actually for anyone in the construction sector you know we certainly support that kind of championing it and making sure that people externally know that you are a flexible working employer because that helps to bring in diversity into your 
workforce as well. So I think that's great advice, actually, to to some of the members of the charter that are listening today is that, you know, you do need to get those messages out and explain that you are a supporter of some of these inclusive strategies that help to bring more females back into the work. Because, of course, we're trying to encourage more females to be promoted within the workplace, but also we know that many have fallen out of the system you know, and they've not returned to work because there haven't been those flexible practices. So I think it's a real opportunity for this sector really to promote the fact that, you know, you're doing some of this this great stuff already. Our next speaker is Craig Carney, head of HR at Seddon. And Craig, I'm going to pass over to you to, to really share. I know that Seddon have done some extensive work to encourage more women into the organisation. So it'd be good to kind of hear about this initiative in more detail and really explain why it's important to Seddon to work towards more gender diversity. So I'm going to hand over to you. Thank you. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you, Daphne. Yeah, so Seddon, I've been working on a number of initiatives in terms of looking at diversity and inclusivity in the workplace. Recruitment at present is very, very challenging in terms of the labour market. I think in February of this year, 2022, there was an additional 1.3 million vacancies in the workplace. So just in terms of recruiting people into the construction industry is a challenge just in terms of recruiting male people into the industry. So in 2017, we set up about looking at how we can really attract, retain and develop um, candidates from a wide variety of different pills. And part of that was looking at ways, first of all, of how we attract females into the construction industry. So we've worked with a number of local schools. So we're working with pupils from 11 to 18 to attract them into the industry. Skill shortages within the industry is still prevalent. We have the labour market demographics that have caused us a challenge. So we've really looked at how do we attract more females into a male-dominated industry. And construction, I'm looking at our own demographics. We have a 90% male workforce currently and 10% female. So the senior leadership team are committed to ensuring that we have a diverse, inclusive workplace. Just going back to some of the initiatives that we are getting involved in, we've really looked at our employer value proposition because when people now look at an organisation to apply for a role, they do that very differently than they did in the 1980s or the 1990s when you would look at a recruitment advert in a publication and simply send a CV and a covering letter. So we've looked at how we market our vacancies and making sure that they're free from language that will put off a certain demographic. How do they interact and engage with Seddon to make sure that they are joining an organisation that is a diverse and inclusive workplace? We're investing in software such as proofing technology to make sure our adverts are free from gender-specific language. And we're also looking at when we are marketing on social media, that we are using web crawler technologies that will tap into talent pools that we've not tapped into before. And certainly from a leadership and management development, we're now offering the whole organization leadership and management development opportunities. And I think that's really important for women because when we look at our gender pay gap, the only way that we're going to close the gender pay gap is if we have more females 
in construction delivery roles. And when I say construction delivery roles, that means typically where a male would be employed in that role, such as a site manager or a project manager or a contracts manager. And that's the only way we're going to close the gender pay gap over the next few years if we recruit, attract and retain those people in those roles. Thanks, Craig. That was hugely insightful. I was actually looking at all of the kind of um, guidance that CIPD provides on the things that you must do, and you've pretty much ticked all the boxes, which is fantastic to hear. And one of the things I was just really interested in finding out more about is the effectiveness of people management. So one of the things we do know through the Charter and CIPD is that enabling our managers to understand some of the kind of complexities and policies and practices that really enable us to look at diversity in our organisations is really important. Yet we know sometimes people managers aren't invested in and therefore some of these initiatives and some of these kind of policies and practices don't happen. I mean, what, what has said and done to invest in kind of people management to enable them to have those conversations, whether it's about flexibility or really, you know, thinking about that workforce and encouraging more female and and diversity into organisations. Because I guess it's not just the leadership team, it needs to be a cultural piece across the whole business. Do you have anything to share on that? Yeah, I think it's an important point, Daphne, because when we rolled out in 2017 some of the initiatives, the hiring managers and some of the middle managers across the business did find it quite challenging because Recruitment is difficult in terms of their time and their resources to be thinking about diversity. So we set about undertaking a number of live labs with our managers, almost like a workshop where we trained on unconscious bias. So we shown five different images of five different people and asked our managers, which one would you pick in the first seven seconds? Because it's a well-known fact that unconscious bias, that you make judgments in them first seven seconds of meeting an individual. Our managers sat back and said, we didn't realize that that's what they was doing. We was completely explicit about we've all got unconscious bias. We spoke about the benefits of gender diversity when recruiting and when retaining individuals. So we, we have a mantra called work is a thing you do, not a place you go. So we want people to be discussing that prior to interview. So is it in the job advert? Is the manager just simply going to HR and saying, I need a site manager or I need a project manager? This is part of your role and part of your responsibility to be an ambassador for diversity and inclusivity in the workplace. And I love construction. I love going onto a construction site. And I've seen the balance where a project is male dominated. And we have a number of KPIs in our construction projects where safety is first. We have program KPIs. And I've done some experiments where I've looked at a gender balanced project and a male dominated project. And the differences are significant. You can actually, from the KPIs, see that those different viewpoints, that collaboration of working, that is now reinvented into the live labs and the training workshops to give the benefit to our managers about how important it is to the business around gender and inclusivity. We're also working before any project starts that we have a team charter for that particular project and we will do blind recruitment. So all the demographic details of a CV, if they're applying for that particular project, will be removed from the application. We're also looking at using Belbin, where when we're working with the project manager to build the team, 
do we remove names of the males and females within the organization, but make sure we've got the nine preferred behavioral styles to make that project a success? And all that will result, in my opinion, in happy workforces, a workforce that will show discretionary effort. And ultimately, it impacts on the bottom line and it impacts on employment engagement. Thanks, Craig. A huge amount of kind of insight there that I think our listeners will will be um, really grateful for. And I, I really like the fact that you're looking at, you know, your data, you're, you're looking at all aspects of, of diversity and really making some kind of quite big decisions, actually, about how you can tackle your organizational culture, your leadership within your organization as well. So it will be great to kind of hear Perhaps there's another episode around some of the work that you're doing and, and really seeing some of the outcomes of that. So I think you shared some great thinking there. Just one final question for you, Craig. I did ask Hannah about flexibility. And I think that this plays a huge role when we're looking at encouraging diversity within our organisations. I'm just interested, I mean, you've talked about lots of initiatives. Is there anything that you've done specifically around, you've talked about your kind of recruitment initiatives, but is there anything that you've done internally around really encouraging that element of kind of how you work, when work gets done? Is that a part of the agenda at Sedan? It has been a big topic of conversation because we have office-based staff that it's quite easy for office-based staff to work from home, work in a hybrid model, work in a hybrid setting. But when it comes to our construction sites, a sites can operate from 8am, half past 7, 8am in the morning till half past four in the evening. It's more challenging in the winter when it goes dark. So we have a set pattern. But I've really challenged the thinking across the business in terms of how do we make our sites more flexible? So you also need a full-time site manager on from health and safety perspective to cover those. So I've challenged to say, where does it say that we must operate within those hours? How can we make sites more flexible? Because if we're trying to promote and retain and recruit more females to be site managers and project managers, then they will potentially flexible working for all. So we've looked at sharing so a nine-day fortnight so we have a roster system where a site manager is familiar with the site that they can then move so we have more site managers moving to cover so that person could do nine days and have a day off working hours we're looking at initiatives where we can open earlier certainly in the summer so we can operate from six till six in the evening parts of the business where that can be accommodated has been proven to be really successful it's easier with office-based hours. It is a challenge. We're still working alongside that and the methodology is how do we get people to be more flexible on site. So yeah, it is a challenge, but we're still looking at ways we can improve that. It's great to hear again within the construction sector and within, you know, you obviously have some challenges as other sectors do as well, Craig, around how to improve workplace flexibility. It's not always easy, but it sounds like you've been really creative around designing more flexible jobs and times, which, you know, is great. And again, it all helps when we're looking for, you know, diversity within our workplaces. So thank you so much for, for sharing, both of you, for sharing your experiences and some of the initiatives you're working on. And I think what, what I would take from the conversation is that, you know, it, it, need, it needs a holistic approach, I think, to build a strong and sustainable female talent and diverse talent pipeline. And there are lots of things that we can do, whether you're a small organization or a large organization. Many of what's been shared 
today, you know, if you take a couple of those initiatives or policies or practices, it's really going to start to enable you to think about how you support female employees in your workforces. You know, thank you so much, Hannah and Craig, for, for sharing that. I just want to end with a kind of final question for you both. And Hannah, I'll come to you first. If there was one piece of advice on this topic that you could give both to the audience, the, the Good Employment Charter and employers more generally across Greater Manchester, what, what would that be? So I'll come to you first, Hannah, and then I'll come to you, Craig. Thanks, Daphne. Yeah, I think my advice like I said, think times are changing now. More male-dominated roles are slowly emerging into female as well, just because that's how the times are now. For employers, I would sort of say, maybe just think about your staffing levels. Think about how, if your company is male-dominated, because again, times are changing and females have just as much importance of being on a construction site than what a male does and the qualifications are changing now not not every male is on the engineering courses you see many females on those courses now and even just for the sort of the wider audience I know a lot of females get judged for being on a construction site and I've seen myself I've seen a couple of females on a building site or a construction site and people sort of look at them as if to say why is there a female on there I think don't be so judgmental because I think there are a lot of highly skilled females around and I think it's just a bit of advice to sort of take on going forward and it'll take away the the doubt from a female because I have experienced doubt myself and I'm imagining I'm not the only one so yeah I just think just sit back and just think times are changing now and women are slowly evolving into the construction industry. That's great Hannah and it's just so lovely to hear how passionate you are about it and you're a true advocate and I think anyone kind of listening hopefully that you know if they are considering whether to come into the construction sector then they have a bit more motivation to do that but equally just anyone who wants to support kind of females in the workplace it it kind of takes some inspiration from from what you said just then so thank you so much for sharing so I'm going to come to you Craig if there was one piece of advice on the topic that you could give what would it be? The piece of advice that I would give would be that we have to make the construction industry and other industries exceptional. There is some great industries out there. I think more women, specifically in construction, can make us exceptional because of the the different skill sets, their knowledge and their experience. And it is a great industry to work in. We're not just seeing vertical promotions and career development now. And I think the construction industry and advice to the Good Employment Charter members about those horizontal moves, about how do we move talent around where there's people will reach a ceiling in terms of succession when we're looking at vertical trajectory, whereas horizontal, if I've certainly seen it within Seddon where we've recruited apprenticeship quantity surveyors, females, where they're now going into different parts of the business looking at how do I become an estimator or I want to be a project manager within construction. I think Females have got a lot to offer the industry with their skills and experience. And certainly when we're looking at how can people be the best they can be at work, we want to work in an environment where people can be the best. And I think that comes from a balanced workforce and the benefits that come from offering that diversity and inclusivity and that opportunity is there is opportunity for varied outlooks and ideas. There will be improved collaboration. And it's up to ourselves that, yeah, whilst construction is a male-dominated industry, women are just as worthy of these roles 
And it's up to ourselves to stamp out the stigma of construction being a macho industry. We need to widen the talent pool. And to conclude there, I would just like to share some of the success stories that said and about through all our initiatives in terms of women. We've got women that have been on leadership and management development programs with a 92% retention rate since 2017. I can now see clear paths of succession from our apprenticeships and early careers program where we're taking on 15 to 20 people per year. And I can see more females now going through the trajectory. So when you look at succession planning, where people are retiring or people are changing the industry due to other reasons rather than just retirement, how do we retain those females and how do we make sure that we've got the skills moving forward for the future, for the success of our customer projects? It's also about rebel ideas and rebel thinking and cognitive thinking, thinking differently, getting your managers to really think differently about the labour market, about the makeup of the workforce, because we need difference. Absolutely, Craig. Thank you so much for summarising there and really sharing some of the success stories from Seddon. And I think, you know, you're a real example of you know, a HR professional who's really influencing this, both, you know, with, with your senior leaders, but across the business. And that's absolutely what we want to be able to do is really encourage employers and people within those organisations to kind of think hard about what they can do to really support that kind of imbalance, as we, we would call it, around females in the, in the workplace. So there's been so much insight and takeaways from this session. And I hope our listeners and, and members of the charter will take much from it. So I would just like to say a huge thank you to Craig and to Hannah for joining us today for this podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been great. Please note that this section of the podcast will contain discussion about sexual harassment and gender-based violence. Please take care of yourself and if you need to, don't be afraid to reach out and ask for help. Resources will be made available in the podcast episode description. Thank you. To close the show, we'll end with our opinion piece. This is essentially a verbal blog where our guests can dive into a specific topic. Today, we're so pleased to be joined by Bev Hughes, Deputy Mayor of Greater Manchester. Bev, it's wonderful to have you here with us today. Thank you so much, Ian. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Fantastic. Bev, you were the driving force behind the hugely impactful Is This OK campaign that was launched last year, and it included a really striking video which highlighted the everyday experiences of harassment that many people face. Bev, could you please explain to us a bit more about the campaign to our listeners and then maybe provide some insight on how people and especially employers can lend their support to fighting sexual harassment in the workplace? Yes, thank you very much, Ian. Well, the Is This OK video, which is just a, a very short video, actually evolved from our broader strategy to end gender-based violence in Greater Manchester. And that strategy was quite a long time in the making. We consulted lots and lots of people, including employers. And a very important strand of that campaign, because we recognise that actually we need to change the culture and attitudes towards women and girls in this country if we are to challenge 
the sense of entitlement that many men feel that they can behave as they like, that in order to do that, the strategy itself has got to have a sustained campaign that questions those attitudes and those behaviours right across the board. And so this was the start of that element of the strategy, the campaign and engagement strand. And the video, I think, was particularly powerful because rather than focus on some of the really, really serious violence that affects women and girls, it actually focused on everyday experiences that I think almost any woman and any girl would would recognise. And it's a young woman going out for a jog and it captures the experiences, the harassment, the kind of latent intimidation and just the experiences of men doing and saying what they like, harassing and subjecting her to kind of ridicule and sexual invitation. And they're very everyday. And I think that's why, you know, we got more than 4 million views in the first week alone of that video, lots and lots of feedback with women and girls saying, gosh, it really is like this. That just spoke to me so powerfully, that very short video. And it highlights the harm then that joking and comments and, you know, just approaching women in that kind of way can have on people. And as I say, another important strand of our work emanating from our consultation with employers is about how we can support business and employers to challenge and root out those kind of behaviours where the harassment and the violence actually starts in these everyday encounters that people take for granted as being normal. They're not normal. And if you understand how women and girls feel about them, you'd actually realise they're not normal and they should be challenged. No, absolutely. I found, you know, a father of a daughter, I found the the video incredibly powerful and and so did Ailsa, my daughter. But in terms of what we can do for employers, Bev, what's the next stage in the campaign? Is there going to be a thread specifically for supporting employers to, as you say, challenge and root out this sort of behaviour in the workplace? There will be. At the moment, we're developing the delivery plan, and that means we have to prioritise which elements of the strategy we'll work on first. This is a 10-year plan, and the consultation we did with other parts of the world who are much further on in terms of gender-based violence strategies advised us that this is not a quick fix. You need to think about 10 years as the kind of term. So there will be a point in time when we focus particularly on employers. But in the meantime, of course, we've got the work of of the growth company and so on, the Greater Manchester Combined Authority. We've got the Greater Manchester Good Employment Charter. And it's very much part of that process as well is about the advice on how best to support the needs of women in the workplace. So we're not actually waiting for the gender-based violence strategy to kind of come online. We, We were able to address some of these issues through the Good Employment Charter. And that's why I was so keen to have this conversation with you today. Yeah, I know it's one of our priorities, Bev, moving forward, and we'll certainly be bringing employers together to share best practice in this space. And it'd be great to have your support other on that as well. You mentioned other parts of the world, Bev. That, that's always interesting to look at international experience. Where would we find the leading examples of gender-based violence strategies at the moment? Well, certainly, you know, places like Canada, but we've developed a particularly close relationship with Victoria in Australia, 
they started this work some years ago now. Our very first meeting of our new gender-based violence board, we connected remotely with the leaders of that campaign in Victoria. They've been particularly helpful in helping us to make this a, a process and an experience that puts the survivors of gender-based violence right at the heart of everything we're doing. So we have representation from victims and survivors on our board. We're establishing a panel to sit alongside the board of women who have come through these experiences to make sure that everything we do is really informed, closely informed by what those experiences tell us about how services and responses to women and girls can best be provided. They're working with us, they're helping us every step of the way. And as I say, we've developed a really close relationship with them. That sounds terrific. One other aspect, how do we support men in that environment who are want to call it out, know they need to call it out, but struggle to call it out because of that kind of locker room mentality perhaps that just fuels it is there plans to produce something or some sort of capacity building that allows people to call those sorts of behaviors out that's such an important question ian you know this is called a gender-based violence strategy for a good reason and there was some contentious about this actually because some people feel it should have been called a strategy in relation to violence against women and girls. And again, talking to international partners and looking at the research on University of Manchester really helped us getting a good understanding of what the research tells us. We decided not to do that because men do feature in this strategy in, in two particular ways. One is that which you've just identified, which is how can we mobilise the goodwill and the support from, if you like, good men who want to stand up when they experience this kind of behaviour or when they witness it and help them to do so. Because I certainly have always believed that men can be and ought to be and we ought to enable them to be champions for women and girls in this you know it's it's not it should not be left to women and girls alone men want to stand up and we should help them to do so so we, we will be exploring that and that will be part of our advice to employers and other organizations going forward the second way in which men feature or will feature in the future is that we also recognize that whilst this is an issue, an issue that predominantly overwhelmingly is violence by men and boys against women and girls. There is a sizable minority of men and boys who also are subjected to abuse and, and violence, mainly from other men, but sometimes astonishingly from, from women partners too. So we're working closely with an organization called Survivors Manchester, which is a brilliant organization, which supports men who've been victims and survivors of abuse themselves. In fact, I visited them last week to get an update on their work. And again, at a point in the future, we'll be working with survivors and other organisations to develop a very specific strand of the strategy, which is about how we both improve recognition of men who experience violence and abuse, and also improve the response, the services to them. So that will be a distinct strand of the work a little bit further down the line of the wider-based gender-based violence strategy. So I think it's really important that we recognise that, you know, whilst, as I say, saying predominantly this is a problem 
faced by women and girls. Bev, thank you so much for all the insights. For me, taking away the, the long-term strategy, the fact that this isn't a quick fix, but you've got to be in it for the long game. And the fact that you involve lived experience all the way through, we've found certainly working with lived experience panels on disability, neurodiversity, etc., just brings such richness to the discourse that we can have with employers. On that basis, you know, you can be well assured that the employers who work with the Good Employment Charter will be fully behind the campaign, Bev, and do call on us when you need us. I will. Thank you very much, Ian. And thank you much for your time. Thanks for joining us this week on Good Employment Chatter. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn for all the latest updates. Subscribe to stay tuned to our episodes. And if you found this one valuable, please leave us a review and recommend it to others. The Good Employment Charter is available to support organisations across Greater Manchester. Please get in touch for more information. We'll be posting new episodes every week, so make sure you tune in next time.